Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Coastal residents of southeastern United States are bracing for a greater impact from Hurricane Dorian. It's left a trail of destruction and at least seven people dead in the Bahamas. The BBC's Aleem Makbul brings us this story. With the hurricane finally moving off the Bahamas after many terrifying days, the devastation can be assessed for the first time, and it is shocking. Marsh Harbour on the low-lying Abaco Islands has been obliterated. Massive storm surges would have overwhelmed this entire area. The airport won't be accessible for days. And other parts of this island chain are still too dangerous to get anywhere near. The International Space Station captured dramatic images of Hurricane Dorian now swirling in the ocean close to Florida. But it is Abaco and Grand Bahama that have borne the brunt of the storm's ire and where in the coming days the humanitarian needs are going to be acute. That was the BBC's Aleem Makbul. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Worldview marked its 25th anniversary by hitting the road back in July. We broadcast from the Islamic Center of America. It's made headlines in recent years for being the focal point of Islamophobic protests. That's because it's the largest mosque in North America. Worldview Steve Bynum spoke with one of the mosque's administrators, Qasem Ali, about a festival they used to have regularly. And I'm sitting here now in the office of Qasem Ali. He is the executive administrator of the Islamic Center of America. Fascinating gentleman who uh, helped us tremendously in our Worldview Facebook live event. We did broadcast here from the Islamic Center of America. And um, he seems to be a jack of all trades. So welcome to Worldview. Thank you for having us. I was talking to you earlier, and I had mentioned the fact that we were in London, Ontario for the Sunfest Music Festival started by uh, a Guatemalan refugee 25 years ago. Multicultural, interfaith event. Beautiful. We heard music from all parts of the world, Middle East, South America, Africa, you know, um, Latin America, you name it. And I had asked you, was there anything like that here in the uh, Detroit-Windsor area? And you had referenced um, an event like that, but that it came to an unceremonious end for a lot of reasons. So tell me about this festival and the story behind it. Well, the festival was uh, called the Arab American Festival, and it took place in Dearborn, Michigan, um, started out very modest with just a few thousand people in a small neighborhood, but eventually grew over almost 15 years into a international festival uh, that attracted almost 250,000 people a year from all over the country, uh, including many volunteer groups from all over the country, including churches and other uh, nonprofit organizations actually coming to the uh, uh, Dearborn area to volunteer during this festival. The festival attracted, uh, you know, many people, many families who just wanted to come and enjoy the carnival atmosphere, uh, food, the culture, music, and uh, it was very, very successful for so many years. And 
every year, unfortunately, attracted some protesters who wanted to uh, proselytize uh, their faith or their point of view on Islam. And uh, they came continuously over the years and, and really did not provoke too much reaction from the community. So they decided to step up their game, if you will, um, in the last few years of the festival um, into a uh, position where they would provoke the last year of the festival, actually, a group came to the festival uh, carrying a uh, decapitated hog's head, a large decapitated hog's head on a stake. Well, I, I don't know what the significance of the figures. What's the figure? Uh, well, unfortunately, they're kind of uh, petrified of, of that animal. And because, uh, because the officers weren't around us, the, the pig head was kind of in lieu of, of the sheriff's department. Okay, That's so kind you, of kept so, them at bay. So, so you brought a pig head to, to threaten them? And a group of them, uh, perhaps 10 or 12 of them, actually walked into the festival uh, with this uh, decapitated hog's head. Uh, needless to say, they did provoke some reaction uh, from mostly children who uh, were upset. And um, not only did they just walk through silently, they walked through and basically provoked uh, the crowd uh, with uh, epithets against Islam and and uh, some very derogatory uh, terms and fundamentally wanted to create a reaction. In that reaction, um, there was a provocation where the kids started to throw uh, water bottles and did react, you know, as uh, most communities would react to that type of provocation. How many how many bottles or objects have you been hit with? Uh, I, I lost count. And it's okay. only, it's okay. only because you guys weren't around. Okay. We have but, video but of that. We don't have enough people to be with everybody at the festival. And we're not saying... I can't, I can't assign a couple officers to each group. What would you need to bring your people out and we're going to lose. And this group that came to provoke this festival actually wanted the police to protect them. And basically they wanted to be protected against these kids that they were actually provoking. With this provocation, uh, they thought that they were entitled to come and do and say and uh, act however they wanted to and expected there would be no reaction. What, what happened, the reason why this is going on now is because of what happened last year. What happened last year is you allowed it to escalate into this. And so uh, you, you guys just lost a lawsuit on free speech and you want to do it again. Okay. We need the leads. 
I don't think we're gonna we're gonna be going anywhere. Why don't you get us the bullpen that we asked for in the email? Okay, well that's a free speech zone, and the Chamber of Commerce decided that they did not want a free speech zone. You're here to protect our rights. I'm here to protect. Safety. I'm here to protect everybody. everybody. And keep safety. Get and, us a bullpen. And where were you when the bottles were flying? And in the end, uh, basically, they were cited by the uh, Wayne County Police Department. The law enforcement did cite them, and it was taken to court after a number of different uh, hearings and and, uh, over a period of time. The court case was won by this group, and the judge awarded them a significant amount of money. Uh, you know, stemming from the lawsuit. Now, who did they sue specifically? They sued the city of Dearborn. They sued the Wayne County Sheriff's Department. Uh, They sued Wayne County. Uh, They sued the organizers of the festival. And they basically wanted, again, to be able to come and exercise their uh, freedom of speech, which we, you know, we we have no issue with them wanting to uh, exercise their freedom of speech, and there was no uh, action of the part of the festival organizers to limit their freedom of speech. However, there was an expectation that the peace would be kept, and their primary uh, goal was to disturb the peace and to provoke a reaction from the festival goers. So really the uh, unfortunate result of this uh, court case and and that final provocation was that this festival of uh, almost 15 years uh, that attracted tens of thousands, actually almost 250,000 people a year, was canceled because of uh, the inordinate insurance costs and security costs made it untenable. So what was the last year of the festival? 2013, I believe. This is Worldview on WBEZ, and I am in Dearborn, Michigan at the Islamic Center of America, and I'm with Kazim Ali, who is the executive administrator of the festival. And um, we are talking about uh, the events that led to the cancellation of the Arab International Festival. So this was canceled. Was there sort of an uproar? The city of Dearborn, was there support? I mean, how how did this all kind of shake out after the cancellation? Well, the city of Dearborn actually had to devote a lot of time and effort and expense to the festival um, because of the law enforcement and the traffic control and all of the logistics related to a festival of this size. I mean, this festival basically was almost a half a mile long, and, and, and it was in the middle of uh, one of the major thoroughfares in Dearborn. So the logistics were one of the reasons that was cited uh, you know, for canceling the festival and the increased cost to security and you know, law enforcement having to be taken away from other areas in the city because of these types of incidents. Come on, we need to go before we get, end up with all this. What, what's the problem? The problem is that one of your people is going to get hurt, or one of the crowds going to get hurt, or one of my officers going to get hurt. You know that this is just going to escalate until it's... Oh, well, if you have a couple of uniforms... Like I don't have a couple about. of uniforms. There's 100,000 people who come to this festival, and i got about 25 to 30 officers. But just two officers, if, if you think it's a threat, so you're going to jeopardize free speech. You, you, want, you want to start I'm not trying to jeopardize free speech. That's what you're doing. But all of the years, you know, uh, leading up to the cancellation, the city was very supportive. Law enforcement was very supportive. And they still are supportive. And we're actually in a position to offer alternative sites for the festival. 
so that it wouldn't perhaps be a risk to the inhabitants of the city and, and risk to the people that were attending. But it never came to fruition. And there, the logistics were such that weighing the um, advantages of having this festival against some of the disadvantages and some of the issues that would reoccur really stopped us from really uh, bringing it back to the city of Durban. You mentioned that there were incidences that led up to over the years before that major incident. And before the interview, you also mentioned uh, an occurrence where these people actually came to the mosque. Can you talk about the things that kind of happened in the run-up to that last festival and then also um, the jeopardy that the mosque was put in? Well, over the years, there were groups that would come and set up booths to basically uh, evangelize uh, their faith, uh, you know, and the majority of the time, really, they were very peaceful and just very informative, and, and people were okay with it and receptive to, you know, them being there. Uh, because this, I mean, festival was diverse and had all different types of activities and, and groups attending. Um, however, there were minor incidents, you know, interactions and, and confrontations that occurred over the years, and they escalated, it seemed, the last few years when the word got out that there were some conflicts. And the escalation really climaxed in the incident where, you know, this group, the Bible believers, brought this uh, decapitated pig's head to basically provoke reaction uh, to further their agenda, really. And you said they came here to the mosque. During the time of the festival, they came to the mosque and actually stood um, maybe 12 abreast in front of the mosque on the curb. This group came uh, and stood in front of the mosque and used some horrendous language against uh, worshipers coming into the mosque. Uh, our approach to anyone that comes to protest at the mosque is to try to have dialogue and invite them actually into the mosque. And and if they don't accept our invitation, we allow them to basically exercise their freedom of speech as long as they're doing it in a peaceful, legal way and really advise our community not to react and not to take the bait, not to be provoked and basically not to give them what they're looking for. And that is basically provocation that they will leverage into more hate and more uh, animosity and, and frankly, more, more attention to their uh, hateful causes. Well, it's unfortunate that the festival has gone away and, you know, maybe we can collaborate on bringing it back because we'd love to come back to Dearborn and have fun with you all because you've been wonderful hosts. Why is it important to have um, a celebration like this? Well, I, I think it's a really uh, important part of being American to really be able to celebrate who we are. And festivals in America are really one of the greatest ways that people get together with their families and in their community, with their neighbors. And festivals this size actually attract people from all over the United States, Arabs, non-Arabs, Muslims, non-Muslims. And they interact and they're able to see each other face to face and are able really to connect with each other to create a feeling of knowledge that they can't necessarily get if they they're not sitting across the table or across the street or sitting in a situation where they will actually have an opportunity to talk to people, an opportunity for dialogue, and an opportunity to know someone that is not necessarily like them. Kazim Ali is the executive administrator at the Islamic Center of America here in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, after the fun I had at Sunfest in uh, London, Ontario, I would love to see the Arab International Festival come back. Thank you for your time. Thank you for coming. Thank you.
That was Worldview's Steve Bynum. And after the break, Steve checks in with more of the people we met during Worldview's road trip to Michigan in Ontario in July. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and we are at the Islamic Center of America in Dearborn, Michigan, as part of Worldview's 25th anniversary bus trip. And I'm with some very special people who work for one of the more important organizations, actually in the United States. The organization is called Access. It is the largest Arab American community not-for-profit in the U.S. And with me are Leila Alabed and Mona Hijazi, and they work for Access. And what's your title, Mona? I'm the Access Community Engagement Manager, and I oversee our Substance Abuse Prevention Community Coalition. And you, Leila? I'm a public health coordinator, and I coordinate the Sexual Assault Prevention Program. So introduce our audience. What is Access, and what do you do? So for Access, we're a nonprofit organization, and we provide services for our community. Um, Many times it's for a community who is in need of services with social services, health, um, employment, The Arab American National Museum is part of ACCESS, so through that we provide uh, services for our kids and we are introducing the community to understanding uh, the Arab culture through the museum um, where we seek out artists and people from the theaters and people from throughout the United States to come out and to see the museum and to learn about the Arab American community and then to also to encourage and to promote and empower our community through the artwork. Layla? Um, I'll just continue off to what Mona was saying. Um, Access has different 11 locations around southeast Detroit, and we have about over 120 programs. Um, but we also have a program called NAC, which is called the National Network for Arab American Communities, and it links all the other Arab American community organizations around the United States. Um, so we can share resources, so we can share ideals, so we can start grassroots programs programs and campaigns. And one of those campaigns is Take on Hate, which is a national program, but it started right here at Access. And it's an anti-discrimination campaign that does things around like the Muslim ban with things that are going around in other Arab American communities that we want to take a stand on. And so, Mona, um, why do you think an organization like Access is important? Well, it's been important for the 48 years now that we have mm-hmm. been around because it started off with a group of people who wanted to be able to help the new immigrants that were coming from the Middle East. Um, and through the years, we have grown tremendously. And one of our big parts of our work is the research that we do with our local universities and our own research team at Access, who focus on health disparities among Arab Americans because as you guys have probably known from before we are considered white on the U.S. Census which has made it very difficult for us to first of all even be recognized and to understand what needs are needed for people to be on the radar um, and for identity. You know it's very difficult growing up not really knowing 
because of what you are considered on a census. And to empower our community about the work that we do, um, not just at Access, but even our local businesses and our lawyers and doctors. I mean, if we were able to be considered on the census under our either the MENA uh, category, if that would pass, it would help us show the positive changes that has happened throughout the years. We try to find ways to get funded through grants and through foundations so that we can serve our community. And with that, we have to collect like our personal stories. We have to create our own surveys, work on our own research, link up with local universities who are willing to help us with that, which has been really wonderful. Um, It's opened my eyes personally to the need for research and the changes that you will see that come from that. But yeah, Access has been the pillar and the hub of the community for 47 years. People come to us because of our reputation, because we're trusted, and because many, many people that have worked at Access were former clients of Access or their families had something to do with it. Um, For example, some of our programs, like our peer coaches, are people from the community who have gone through addiction and now are in the process of recovery. People in our breast care awareness program are survivors. So we have over 500 employees, I think, now, Mm -hmm. and we speak over 19 languages. So we're able to accommodate to anyone that walks through our doors who's seeking help. The one thing we try to do is a one-stop shop. So that's why we have over 100 programs, because we are trying to create a space where if somebody came to us for a job, we make sure that their health is taken care of, their kids' health is taken care of. We've never closed our doors. We've never shied away from helping someone. And, you know, just like I was telling Leila, I was sitting here right now and I overheard a conversation of a lady who needs to apply for health insurance. It has nothing to do with my personal program, but I know someone who can help her. And I'll tell you, I'm not the only person access like that. Almost everyone who works there, we say you have access DNA, which means you're trying to give back to our community. And the one thing that I will say, Leila will agree to, is we take on issues. Um, We don't shy away from things. Um, We try to break stigma. Like mental health was a huge stigma in our community and many communities. Our community understand that they're not alone on this, um, be it domestic violence, mental health, HIV, infectious disease, you know, need for help. It comes to work. At some point, many of the people that work at Access have family or them themselves were immigrants or refugees. And so we understand how it feels to come from another country and to come here and to learn how to understand the process of living in the United States. Um, I'll agree to pretty much everything Mona has said. Um, Access really has been a pillar in the community in Dearborn and for the Arab American community. And I think we've been an example for communities that look like ours across the United States, where they have high concentration or high populations of Arab Americans. And not only Arab Americans, we serve any resident of Wayne County, Oakland County, and um, Macomb, I believe. So we don't shy away from helping anyone, but we specialize our work um, to serve Arab Americans because of the specific challenges or barriers that Arab Americans may face when trying to find a job or um, fill out paperwork, immigration paperwork, or trying to apply for state benefits and, and things like that. And I'll agree with uh, Mana is that Access doesn't shy away from the controversial issues, even if we know that we're going to receive a backlash from within our own community. And the example of that is that I um, coordinate our sexual assault prevention program, which is a new program at Access. And 
when we saw the Me Too movement kind of trickle down even into like the black and brown communities. And we saw more and more survivors in our community come out to tell their stories. I'm a survivor myself. Um, and I didn't start talking about that until, you know, the Me Too movement, Time's Up movement first started to make, you know, waves across social media and um, culture and things like that. So when we saw what was happening in our community and we saw that survivors were looking for an outlet, Access created and encouraged me as a survivor to create this program. And um, we looked for funding and um, thankfully we were able to do that. And we're hoping that this is a program that will grow because it's an issue that we definitely need to talk about. I'm Steve Bynum and I'm at the Islamic Center of America in Dearborn, Michigan. This is Worldview and we're on our 25th anniversary bus tour. You just heard Layla Elabed and she works with Access as well as Mona Hijazi who's also with Access. Access is the largest Arab American community not-for-profit in the United States of America. So you both touched on the fact that you're not afraid to take on challenging issues or issues that will cause um, disruption or disagreement within your community. Um, Layla, you discussed sexual violence, sexual assault. Uh, what are some of those other issues that you feel are important, you know, that sort of airing your dirty laundry kind of issues, but you know that it's important for the sake of healing in your community? Uh, Mona, you want to take that? Yeah, um, really, I think that like all communities, especially communities of color, communities that have a large population of minorities, Almost everything can all be a, an issue to talk about. I mean, in the 90s, the word cancer wasn't said. Um, addiction isn't talked about. We worked very closely um, with our community leaders on that. Sexual orientation isn't talked about. Gender equity isn't talked about. Women's rights are not talking about empowerment. I mean, there's a lot of issues. Again, I, I would have to say that it's not just in our community. It's in almost all the communities across the United States. But it's about how are we going to be making change in the work that we're doing, or how are we going to provide these services if we don't talk about it, and if we don't get our community to talk about it, and that includes our faith and community, and that includes our schools and our parents, and education and resources has always been key. I'm huge on prevention because it is one of the things that will start the conversation. And the nice thing is that what we do is that when we are out there talking about whatever topic it is, for example, when I'm talking about addiction or recovery or treatment, I'm very sensitive to my audience. Um, we are an organization who our communication all has to do with culture sensitivity, understanding who our audience is, understanding how we're speaking to people, because it could hinder a person from coming and seeking those services. So we are very careful with that. When it comes to people that are trying to seek services in, in addiction or uh, mental health, we are careful with how we interact with that person. For example, many times um, we'll have someone who's gone through that talk to that person because it helps them understand that they're not alone. And the other thing is, is that because we are who we are and we are the hub, in the hub of the community and we are trusted we have to take these issues on, on behalf of our community, because they look to us for those answers. And one thing that happens many, many times in communities is people feel like it's just them, or it's just their family, or they're the only ones struggling, whatever it is. I mean, finance sometimes becomes a shame factor. People don't want to say that they have problems. People are embarrassed to ask for help. And we're there to take that away. We're there to offer those services, and not only offer their services, many, many times what I've seen, especially with immigrants and refugees, is they need help 
in the beginning, but it's our job to empower them to become sustainable without these benefits. With our employment and training, I mean, we work with how they find clothes for interviews, um, where they're going for their interviews, how they did, how we prepare them, we help create their resume. I mean, when we look at a person, we look at them with a holistic approach. So why don't you give me some examples? You don't have to say anyone's name in particular, but just people that you've helped and where you saw them at a low point, but where then they came out on the other end. I have a refugee family that I worked with. They were both young. The mom was in her late 20s and the dad was in his 30s. So a young couple came over from Syria and they had two young kids that they actually um, were born in refugee camps in Turkey. And they came over here and they were given um, a home, but then it was like, how do you pay for that home? And I became the case manager for this family. And every single time I went to the father with like helping hands, with donations, he would take what he needed and then give stuff back to me. And I'm like, okay. And it was a very interesting thing. So one day I sat with him and I said, you need this. Like, why are you giving it back to me? And he was like, I want to learn how to speak English put me in ESL classes. He needed help getting a car. We helped him with that because he wanted to go to his job and come home and for transportation because in our city, public transportation is very difficult. So I had this family for nine months and it was a pilot program. It's called Building Blocks for New Americans that we piloted. And in nine months, we wanted to see what changes were made. My family went from getting assistance from us for rent to being able to pay their rent on their own. I had them on a program with the electricity and gas company. They were taken off that program. They were able to pay their DTE bill on their own. The father found a job outside of the city of Dearborn, which, you know, many times when you come to one city and you're new to the United States, you really don't leave the perimeter of where you're from because it's comfortable. And he moved out and found a better apartment schools for his children. He was able to have surgery done on his son for his lip because he had a he had an issue with his mouth. Um, and he was also missing two toes when the boy was born in the refugee camp. And he was able to get assistance at the University of Michigan. The father found a full-time job. The mom was getting English classes. And at the end, I was looking at them and I'm like, I cannot believe we did this in nine months. For me, I remember walking out crying because at the end, she ended up giving me donations back that she wanted me to give to other families. And she was starting to learn how to drive herself, where she didn't even drive when she lived overseas. The father was speaking English and getting paid. It was understanding what taxes are. And and the kids were getting put into good schools and receiving lunches at schools and they were receiving after school programs. And and just to watch this family flourish, I, you know, this doesn't always happen, but when it does happen, you just stop and you say, I did something right today. I did something right with by this person. Um, so I'm in the prevention side of my work, but we have outpatient mental health and we do have partnerships with inpatient facilities. And the one thing why I would do the work I do is because I've seen this firsthand with a family member, how difficult it is to get back into life, into society, when you feel like, you know, stigma and shame around addiction and the opioid epidemic that's happening across the United States right now, no one is immune to it. And I've seen cases of people who have been brought to us on death's doors. They've been placed with our peer coaches who have gotten them into inpatient and came back to us for our outpatient therapy and now are working on getting into employment and coming back into the community. I've been told once that you got to change community change. you got to change a population. And I'm like, you know what? If we save one person, we did something right. But I give kudos to our leadership 
when it comes to shying away from that, when we have ideas as employees or we have things that we feel like we need to see happening in our community, they listen to us, they empower us. Uh, me and Layla can both advocate for women empowerment at work. It's family. They are just, I mean, I won't work for anyone else, to be honest. <laughs> I just won't. <laughs> Layla, do you have any stories about a person or a particular family? Well, I can't talk on particulars just for the safety of survivors that I work with. But what I do love to see with the sexual assault prevention program, and even uh, prior to this position, I coordinated the domestic violence prevention program. And it still is very much a stigmatized topic. But I'm noticing that the more that we talk about it, the more that people are making those changes to believing survivors, empowering survivors, and also holding perpetrators accountable in our community. And I think that's so important, especially when um, you see a lot of times survivors, they might not be looking for any type of criminal justice because of certain factors or it's something that happened when they were children and they're adults now. Or, you know, this person is the breadwinner of their family or they might be the person that is accountable for their immigration status or their citizenship status. They want something to be done. They want the abuse to stop or they want that person to be held accountable, but they necessarily don't want to take this to the police or, and of course, in most situations, that's what we encourage our clients to do. Um, but sometimes it's not always feasible and we have to do what's best for the client. But what I do like to see is as a community, um, that we are moving towards that change where when we know of a perpetrator in our community, we don't hold a platform for them. Um, and we are holding them accountable. But also, I love to see the empowerment from women in our community. Um, we hosted an event a couple months ago called The Unapologetic. And this was an opportunity for survivors to come up and tell their stories. And it was such an impactful event. Like people are still talking about this event and just, it was survivors from within our community, some Arab American, uh, some Muslim American and some not. Um, it was so healing and so cathartic, not only for the survivors themselves, but for our community, because we still do have a lot of um, men and women in our community who still are not comfortable coming forward but we are seeing a change and it is amazing to me to see that the work that we're doing is empowering those individuals. Wow. <laughs> wow. Layla Elabed and Mona Hijazi are both with access. It is the largest Arab American community, not for profit in the United States. And um, they're based in Dearborn, Michigan. When we are talking at the Islamic center of America, which um, holistically serves Muslims uh, in this region. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. State houses across the U.S. are becoming younger and more diverse. After the break, we'll hear from a 29-year-old who is in his second term in the Michigan State House. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Millennials are twice as likely to run for public office in the 2018 midterm than in 2016. We all know about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the U.S. Congress, but it's the state houses around the U.S. that have become younger and more diverse. When we were in Michigan for our Worldview bus trip in July, we met with 29-year-old Abdullah Hamoud, who won his second race for state representative last year. He represents the Dearborn area. It has the highest concentration of Arabs and Muslims in the United States. Worldview Steve Bynum spoke with him at the Islamic Center of America. What is it that made you think or had the gall to say, I'm going to be an elected official at age 25? I was at a point in life where I realized that giving back was the purpose that I wanted to pursue. And in speaking with community members and realizing that elected officials didn't look like me, didn't sound like me, didn't have a name like mine, um, I sat back one day and I said, why not me? Can anybody answer that question? Why, why, can, cannot, can, why can't people such as myself step forward and actually run who are from this community, who are for this community? Um, and as somebody who was born and raised here, we said, why not? And we jumped on in. Hmm. You are uh, repeating a saying by the ancient Torah scholar Hillel who said, if not me, who? If not now, when? You were just lying in bed, head behind, you know, had your hands clasped behind your pillow. And you said, I think I'm going to run to be a state rep. I mean, did, did, what, did, was yeah. there a moment? Did something happen? Did something make there you was. mad where you just said, you know what, enough of this? Yeah. So, you know, growing up, my, my first passion, my first love was medicine. Mm. And I had always wanted to be a physician, a pediatric oncologist, to be specific. Mm. And that's where I pursued my studies. I, I focused. I got my bachelor's in biology. I pursued a master of public health. I um, was very young when I was uh, accepted and, and graduated. And then, uh, you know, I was waitlisted at medical schools year after year. Um, and so I took some time away from work where I used to work at the University of Michigan Health System. I took a sabbatical, went to the country of Jordan, working refugee camps uh, with the United Nations, came back. Um, and I was pursuing... Um, you know, a new career and a new avenue. And I had this saying growing up uh, with many of my friends who grew up on the east side of Dearborn, the poor side of Dearborn, um, the east and south end, we had a saying of six figures by 26. We wanted to be financially stable because we saw our immigrant parents struggle. And the one thing we never wanted to do was struggle over finances. And so at 25, I was actually interviewing for the job that would land me my first six-figure salary when my older brother passed away unexpectedly. And he was 27 years and nine months old. And when that happened, I asked myself, what what is my purpose? Uh, This short-lived dream I was pursuing to six figures by 26 lacked longevity, and it lacked real meaning. And to me, my brother was my biggest advocate. And I thought that a way to pay tribute and homage to his life would be an advocate for my community the same way he was an advocate for me. And so I left the corporate world, and I decided to go into the public sector. What did your parents say? Uh, When I first sat down, my parents, um, my father told me, did you forget that your name is Abdullah? (laughs) Uh, And my mother told me she fled uh, a civil war in Lebanon because of politics. Um, And that's not the the life that she'd ever envisioned for me. Um, And so they weren't, um, they never said yes, they actually said no. Um, But knowing how stubborn I was, and they knew how committed uh, I, I can be once I know what I want to be passionate about. Um, they supported me, nonetheless, although they did not agree with the decision. What was your selling point to them? It's what I want. It's what I want to do. Um, I want to give back. 
Um, and at that point, the, the sales had set. So tell me about the, your first election. Yeah, it was, it was interesting being on the same ballot that Trump was on um, <laughs> in a community that has quite the history. Dearborn, uh, for the longest time, had a city motto of keep Dearborn clean, which meant keep it clean of African-Americans. Um, we had one of the longest reigning mayors in American history, Mayor Hubbard, uh, known documented racist. Um, and that motto eventually translated to keep it clean of African-Americans and keep it clean of Arab-Americans. Um, and so when I ran for office, there was a contingent within this community, um, regardless of party affiliation, Democrat, Republican. I still remember when I sent out my first mailer to households, uh, several of them were mailed back to me with no return address, shredded up saying no more Arabs, no more Muslims, go back to the, to, go back to your country. Um, there were many times where I was knocking, uh, you know, uh, high democratic doors, you know, people who voted Democrat 70, 80, 90% of the time. And when I answered the door three blocks from my house at the time, I still remember this, recall this one individual. I said, hi, I'm Abdullah Hamoud running for state rep. Uh, I'm your neighbor down the block. And he said, you're my neighbor? I said, yes. He said, I'm disgusted that you're my neighbor mm-hmm. and slammed the door in my face. So there was a lot of the racism and bigotry uh, at the time, but it certainly wasn't the consensus of the majority in Dearborn. And you know that's proof in the election results. Uh, so we worked the doors really hard, knocked about 25,000 doors uh, that summer. How close was the election? Every poll had us down double digits, and we ended up winning by about 10%. Wow, wow. What did that feel like? It was, uh, I still remember that day, I, I broke down. I just couldn't believe it. Um, it was hard to fathom that uh, it had all actually come to fruition, all of our hard work, our sweat. And I say our because it was a community-led campaign. It was a grassroots-led campaign. Um, and I think, you know, my parents realized I didn't make the wrong decision uh, in that moment. And I bet they were all in once you convinced them, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they eventually were all in. I mean, my dad became uh, a lawn sign machine. I'd hand him, you know, 25 lawn signs a day and he'd find places to put yeah, them. Yeah. Uh, my mother, uh, she's a car insurance agent. And so she was calling every one of her clients huh. that she knew that walked in. My flyers were at her desk. So it really was a full family affair. I was going to say also, my son's 22, so he has no excuse. And so what advice do you have for young people who are considering it? Yeah, I mean, for any young person out there that's, that's considering running, the first thing I'd say is, um, you know, understand that your biggest opponent is going to be yourself. If you're able to wake up each day, look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that I will do all that I need to do today to, to get the job done, then you, then you should be able to put your head at night on that pillow and rest easy knowing you're giving it all. Um, the commitment to the community is first and foremost. Um, I never ran for this, for the spotlight, for the title, whatever it may be. I actually don't like being called representative. I, I appreciate people just call me by my name. Um, so never lose sight of, of who you are, where you came from, or why you're why you went into it to begin with. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum talking to Abdel Hamoud. He is Dearborn State Representative. Dearborn is the 15th district in the state of Michigan. And he uh, was just reelected and he's only 29 years old. You grew up in this community. Um, What are some of the issues that mean a lot to you that you work on that you want to see your um, colleagues in the legislature work on? Yeah, one of the biggest is environmental justice. If you go to the south end of this community, uh, the south end of Dearborn border, southwest Detroit, and it is known as the asthma epicenter, 
it's the highest rates of asthma in the whole state and some of the highest rates of asthma across the whole country where just by living in those zip codes, you're four to five times more likely to have asthma. Um, and it's largely because of just the cumulative impact of all the factories within that industrialized region. And for me, I want my colleagues to see that, you know, your zip code should not determine your health outcomes, um, that our environment should be fueling your imagination and not your asthma. Um, so that's one thing I'm really passionate about and that we're really advocating for with a strong coalition uh, across all parts of Dearborn now who realize that, one, there are no boundaries also when it comes to the environment. Um, and so it certainly has become a full community uh, event um, and something that we're all advocating for in a, in a cross-sector collaboration kind of way. Um, the other was auto insurance. It's one of the issues hmm. you hear about all the time. Uh, Detroit, the Dearborn area, is home to the highest auto insurance rates in all of Michigan. Um, and we are the highest auto insurance rates. Well, hold on now. Now, um, is your mom a lobbyist? Is My your mom, mom is not a lobbyist. Does she lobby you when you come home? She's like, hey, son, she, come on. She hears the stories firsthand. Uh, I'll give you an example. She had a woman call, uh, an elderly woman call, whose husband had passed away. And she was trying to remove her husband off of the insurance policy. When she removed her husband off the policy, her premium went up $300 every six months. Which to me is strange, but insurance companies price you. If you are a widow or single, you get charged more. Which makes no sense. Which makes no sense. If you have bad credit, you get charged more. If you don't have a college degree, you get charged more. If you work a blue-collar job and not a white-collar job, you get charged more. If you happen to live on the wrong side of Greenfield or in the wrong zip code, you get charged more. All these non-driving factors, uh, it's a form of redlining. Communities or you know brown, black, poor communities. Um, all these driving, non-driving factors have nothing to do with how good of a driver you are. Uh, we're used to, uh, to rate. Um, and some legislation has passed a few months ago, and it goes into effect in the summer of 2020. Um, a lot of these factors are now barred from being used by insurance companies. Um, so there's big changes ahead, and we're hoping that um, you know, it, it produces uh, the results that we all yearn for. Hmm. So uh, we just came from Flint, Michigan. Mm -hmm. You're well aware of the, the water situation there and similar issues of environmental justice mm -hmm. and uh, the fact that they're still struggling with uh, water that um, even if, if the water were pure, there's no trust in the government. Um, when you think about um, Flint, Michigan and what's happening there, how does that move you? You know, uh it angers me, but motivates me to keep on pushing for environmental justice. You know, Flint was a failure of government at all levels. Um, and you nailed it, that there was no trust. There is no trust. Um, and there was no transparency and still is no transparency with what's being done, how it's being done. And the unfortunate reality is, because it's been a few years of the Flint water crisis first broke, the media is also not focusing on Flint as much anymore. You don't hear about Flint in the media as much, right? We have a news cycle that's very short, very quick. Um, and, and the people of Flint uh, feel forgotten, rightfully so. Um, I have faith in our new attorney general and solicitor general who are, uh, you know, who have opened up a whole new investigation into what happened with the new administration. Um, and I'm certainly hoping that my colleagues in the legislature appropriate the money that is needed to tackle not only these short term effects when it comes down to replacing all the infrastructure, but the long term effects of what it means to have drank poisoned water. Uh, for a generation of youth to come. Um, so that's going to be a long-term investment that Michigan uh, is on the hook for and needs to be on the hook for um, and should very much pay for. Since you decided to run, obviously you're a role model 
for you talked about your other colleagues, your other friends when you were young, you had that club. What was it? One hundred and six. Six figures by twenty six. Six figures by twenty six. So um, have you sort of made that pivot when you made the decision? This is not what I want. This is not what life can be about. So. Yeah. Has has your being elected inspired other young people, if not to run, to at least seriously consider yeah. getting involved in politics? I, you know, I think I, I may have contributed in small some small way, but I think there was a movement being built uh, long before I ever jumped in, and that's being built upon till to this day. We have this generation of youth who I'm excited to see in office. Um, you know, when I go around, even during March's Reading Month, and I read to all the schools, and I speak to the third graders, fourth graders, fifth graders. Uh, the fire and the passion I see in their eyes, their ability to identify issues that we need to tackle in the community at such a young age, something that I never exhibited. Uh, I know that. Um, I, I am extremely uh, uh, inspired um, to see them grow uh, and can't wait to see what they do. And so there's a whole generation of youth that's ready to jump in. And I think there is an old guard, unfortunately, that sometimes has a wait your turn mentality. Um, you know, I felt that when I tried running for office, um, it may be more present in minority communities. Sometimes I feel like, um, but I, I think they're they're here to stay, and I think the youth across the country are making their voices heard. So, Abdullah, uh, what's the future like for you? Any aspirations for higher office? You know, at this point, I I love public service, and I don't want to give my life to public service. Um, I'm very much focused on being the best state rep I possibly can be. I didn't know I would be here two years ago. Um, and so I'm still soaking it all in. Um, and so I think whatever the next endeavor is, uh, I know it'll be in public service. Uh, and as we say in, in the religion, what God plans will be. Well, I can tell by meeting you that uh, when you put your mind to it, it's, it's going to happen. So stay tuned. Let's keep an eye out. We're going to keep an eye out on you. I appreciate that. Abdel Hamoud, he is the state representative for the Dearborn District of the state of Michigan. Thank you for being on Worldview. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Worldview's Steve Bynum at the Islamic Center of America back in July. We met a lot of interesting people like Representative Abdullah Hamoud during our tour of the Great Lakes and Upper Midwest. There's lots to learn about the connectivity of the world there. If you'd like to listen to more of the interviews, we have them online at wbez.org slash wvbus. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about the Bahamas and hurricane the hurricane that hit there and what people are saying about doing about it. We heard a big climate forum on CNN last night. It garnered plenty of attention. And uh, in coming weeks, we're going to talk more about climate change on this radio station. We are taking part in something called Covering Climate Now. There are 220 news outlets that are going to do climate coverage during the week of September 16th, right before the run up to the UN Climate Change and Climate Action Summit. So we'll be doing a bunch of things on Worldview Climate and the Great Lakes. We'll be talking with uh, the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and talking about green jobs in Illinois. That's coming up the week of September 16th here on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.